Avengers, assemble. In the wake of Endgame, some were lost, others regained. They're good. What happens next? Stay tuned, true believers, as we try to find out. Peter Melnick. Graphic designer, comic book enthusiast, and podcast pontificator. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Upstate New York radio announcer in the Sullivan Catskills with an inordinate amount of catching up in his own comic book universe. Ready? It's time for a new episode of The Marvelists. Hi, this is Darren Clark, creator of Savage Dragon. And you're listening to The Marvelists with Peter Melnick and Eddie Wilson. Welcome, everyone, to The Marvelous, the Marvel Universe podcast. I'm Peter Melnick. And I'm Eddie Wilson. And before we get into the usual rigmarole of today's episode, and, you know, I can never get tired of saying this part, introducing our special guest on the other end of the tin can and string, we want to tell you all at home how you can get a hold of us on them, our social media. We meaning you. Go ahead. The royal weave, and I got a crown on it. It's Burger King crown, but I digress. <sighs> you can find us on a wide variety of Social media platforms, including Facebook at facebook.com slash The Marvelists. Join the 20,000 plus that are on there, and you can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at The Marvelists. On, in addition, you can, because I don't want to say the other one that I always go with as my go to, you can find us individually on social media. Myself on Facebook at facebook.com slash Peter Melnick Podcaster, Instagram, and the Twitter machine at Peter Melnick, and I don't know why, but I joined TikTok and actually deleted the app, so I don't know why I care anymore. Mm. But you can find me at Peter Melnick, but better. In addition, you can find Eddie Wilson on one social media platform, and that's in the whole wide world of the Internet, and that is on Instagram, and that is at... Eddie9193. Additionally, you can find the show streaming. If you're wanting to find the show, you know, somebody's blaring this on a ghetto blaster, and they're just like, I really dig these guys. You like the show? And then you look confused. You're in the wrong neighborhood, like, too. Jeez. Maybe, but what I would say is you can find us on a wide variety of streaming platforms. Available on all iOS and Android devices are these apps. SoundCloud, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean among wherever you can wrangle that little RSS feed. And iTunes, by the way, where you can rate, review, subscribe, and let people know you're enjoying the show. Five stars, keep it five stars, no more, no four stars. Because, Eddie, much like the ice cream machine at McDonald's, four stars doesn't work. Now, Eddie, going back to that tin can and string, we are joined on the other end of the line with someone on the best coast. He is the creator of one of my all-time favorite comic characters and independent comic characters, the Savage Dragon. No, we're not joined with old Finhead. We're joined with Yondu? Eric Larson. Stop that. Eric, <laughs> good afternoon, as we're recording in the afternoon. <sighs> we are. All right. Well, it's afternoon here, too. So. Eric, I'm sorry if that introduction reminded you of an old-time movie where you got all the credits at the beginning of the movie. This was, This is it. <laughs> Eddie, that's movies in general. Taking down all that stuff. That was the worst. The sad thing is, it's in his head. Ah, so Eric, how are you in these pandemic times? Oh, it's awesome, isn't it? <laughs> oh, great! It's an acronym for something. I don't know what. Like usually, I would have to make some big excuses to why I have to work this weekend, but now it's like I, I get to work every weekend. It's mm. awesome. 
And you've been getting a lot done. I'm following you on social media, especially on Facebook, where you're talking about how Savage Dragon number 250 is nearing completion as of this recording on 5-6. And I remember that because of Revenge of the Fifth and Star Wars Day two days ago. 5-6 numerically. Yeah, okay. (laughs) But I'm excited to see what is coming along in the series. I don't want to ask for spoilers, but... I want to know, how excited are you for this to finally see print, and this far along? Um, you know, I'm, I'm excited for every issue, so I, I, do, I do like having those 100-page square-bound books. I, I always like those for the, for the anniversaries, and I did another doozy for, for this one. Um, so that part of it's always like, oh, this is going to be cool, just because mm-hmm. I like I like that format, and that was something that used to come out uh, when I was a kid. There was I was a, a, a child of the '70s, so we would get those hundred-page super spectaculars from DC, and those were always like just an exciting thing to have in your hands because there there weren't trade paperbacks back in the day, so yep. that was the closest thing we came to having there be books that would come out. I think one of the big differences, if not the big difference between, like you said, the Super Spectacular then and the Square Bound now is no big staples going through it. Yeah. <laughs> it's solid. It's good. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, we the, the printing, the everything in terms of just modern production values are so much different over the years. I mean, back then we couldn't do full bleeds. Uh, all the coloring was, you know, the, the old coloring that it was for uh, for years and years and years, you know? Superman always had one yellow boot. <laughs> and with Savage Dragon, it's a series that, you know, has been going on technically since, I want to say, the 70s now, you know, with the early, you know, your original versions drawn on notebook paper, evolving into fanzines and whatnot. And then mm-hmm. in the early 90s, you know, with Malibu Studios, Image Comics, everything explodes, and it's a series that has seen so many evolutionary changes, you know, not just in terms of the characters, but also in terms of the technology being used to help produce the series, to help, you know, everything, coloring and all that stuff. What is your favorite change through all of it? What was that? With, you know, the technical aspects of, like, production of the book, what is your favorite change that you've experienced so far with Savage Dragon, you know, helping make the production of the book a lot easier? Well, it's, it's nice for somebody who's a real control freak to be able to be super, super hands-on in terms of making the book. You know, for years and years... Uh, when, you know, back when I was working in Marvel or, or DC earlier on, you would just see the final stuff in print. And there was just no interacting with anybody along the process. It just didn't, that part wasn't part of it. If somebody had a, uh, if there was a balloon pointed to the wrong person or if something was miscolored, it was just, well, that's what happened this issue. And you just, move on and get to the next one because that's just the way of the world. Um, and now I'm getting 
the coloring sent directly to me and I can go in there and I can tweak stuff and fix stuff and change things and make whatever small alterations need to go on. I'm getting the lettering sent directly to me and I can correct those little typos and just get everything exactly the way I would like it to be. And it's, you know, it just becomes this, this, Super anal guys <laughs> whisper fondant of mm. finally control. The control is mine. I have the power. And, you know, I mean, additionally, uh, because I'm, I'm self publishing and, and through image, uh, I'm my own editor, so I don't have anybody saying to me, you can't do that. Um, I'm, I have complete control all the way down the, the line so that uh, there's really nothing that I can't do, which, you know, has benefits and, and costs at the same time, you know. So that part of it is, is, is pretty great. And I've never had that kind of freedom um, as a creator anywhere else. In, in the process. And then I go back and do uh, a little bit of work here and there at other companies. Um, you miss it. You know, you get back into it and you, and you go, oh, yeah, that's right. I don't have the final word on stuff. Um, I d- did a, a cover some time ago and I just uh, had sent it in to the editor. So I was like, here you go. And they're like, oh, Oh man, it's a good thing we like it. We usually ask people to send us a, a cover sketch first, and I and I was like, "Oh yeah, that's right, you do." I'd totally forgotten that step in the process because I don't have to deal with that step on my own. I just draw a cover, and that's the way it is. You know, I'm going to so take a wild going, guess. <laughs> I'm going to take a wild guess and say that was for the Captain America: The End Story. Um, no, this was actually a while further back than that. It was for, uh, um, they did a cover for a, for a Superman issue some years ago. And, and, uh, I, I had totally forgotten that that was part of the process. I, and that one I colored too. So it was like, here it is ready to be printed. And it was like, oh, oops. <laughs> And when it comes to Savage Dragon, color is one of the most important things. Obviously, you know, you have the gray, or not the gray, the green of Dragon before, you know, he's eventually shipped off because I'm not going to reveal the twist because even though the twist happened, I believe, in 2006, I'm not going to spoil it for everybody. Mm-hmm. But um, Well, the, the, the thing that for people to know is that the book is set in real time. So... Characters age and change and, uh, in some cases, die, and, and things do move on quite a bit. So while 28 years have passed in the real world since the initial miniseries started, 28 years have also passed for the characters. So, you know, where, where some character, you know, you start off the book and a character's Superman's age, 29, uh, by now they'd be 57. So things, things happen, and a lot of things change quite a bit. The status quo doesn't uh, 
doesn't really stay where it's at for very long because people's lives move on and, and changes happen. That's what I've always liked about the series, too, because, and your writing style in general, especially on Savage Dragon, because you'll have a character and you build up an emotional reaction with the audience of, wow, this character is going to be, oh, they're gone. And it's such a, you pull the rug right from under, and it, but it's done so expertly and so just fantastic, you know? And that's the unpredictability of comics that makes it so great, and the storytelling in general. And where did you get that idea from initially to do stuff like that? Um, it was, it, it's sort of an idea that was, talked about um, years and years ago was, was, I mean, inevitably readers reach an age where they suddenly realize, oh, I'm, I'm now older than Peter Parker is, or I'm older than Superman is, or Archie, or whoever, and in, invariably somebody goes, oh, wouldn't it be cool if these characters grew up with me? And often people will write in to Marvel or DC or all these companies and suggest that or, you know, demand that or whatever. And they're, and they're constantly going, Hey, how come Robin has aged and became Nightwing, but Batman still seems to be about the same age or, or you know, why does, I mean, the new warriors are another example of you look back to those characters, history, just prior to that book, and you go, well, wait a minute, this character last, we saw him was eight years old, and this character was a, a teenager, and this character was in their 20s, and you put them all together, and suddenly they're all roughly the same age. What, what the heck happened here? Um, and and in, in, in people want, they, they like the idea of characters growing up with them, and I wanted to say, just try it out and see how it could work if such a thing actually happened. And um, so it's kind of an experiment on my part just to see how this could play out. Marvel and DC can't really do that just because um, they would be, I mean, they'd be, they'd be essentially killing off their, their iconic characters. You can't really do that. Some of these characters only work if they're certain ages. Um, but I I'm, can do that because I can create new characters. I can create new bad guys and new, new good guys, and, and I can change things up. Uh, and, and that's fine. You know, a lot of the, the book's major um, villains have, have up and died over the years. Um, and that's completely fine because I, I'm just going to create new characters and I'm constantly doing that, refreshing the, uh, the plot as it were. And, you know, Robert Kirkman, who cites you as a major influence, uh, especially on his work on the walking dead, you know, unexpectedness, unpredictability. Mm -hmm. He, he's gone on that his biggest regret in the series was lopping off Rick's hand. And were there any moments during your run so far on Savage Dragon that you're like, oh, I shouldn't have done that? Oh, all the time. 
<laughs> and you just and usually it's I regret killing this character off. And there have been a couple times where I went out of my way to find some way of reviving those characters that I killed off. And in pretty much every case, when I've revived somebody, I've ended up regretting it. So, you know, it just, it, it is what it is. Uh, I think I mentally kind of let go once I've had a character kind of go away. Um, and, and, you know, you just have to pick up where you're at and carry on. And yeah, you know, you can you can end up creating a character in their place that you know might also have those same characteristics that you wanted all along. But it's also the fun of you know you end up developing the character a little bit more too. You know, you end up maybe, oh, I wanted to do this right in this one. Let's do it in this. Okay, cool, that worked. Or oh, that didn't work. All right, let's move yeah. back a little. You know. Well, there's I've I've already kind of not 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 at image, but. Um, when I did this stuff as a kid, I had told a bunch of stories uh, and created my own comics. Like I, I started writing and drawing Dragon comics in like 1972 or so. So I did that throughout grammar school and uh, and high school, and then I published a fanzine when I was 19 years old uh, called Graphic Fantasy, in which those stories were uh, sort of the, the culmination of, of everything that I had done to date at that point. And, um, and, so, and so when I, when I reimagined the characters, when I went to Megaton, I brought some characters back to life that, had, that I'd killed off. And then when I came and did stuff at Image, I essentially started over again. Um, because it's like I can't really be referring back to comics that I drew when I was in fifth grade, and <laughs> nobody has any access to. You know? <laughs> so, so there's a lot of kind of starting over to some degree anyway, and and kind of looking at at the way I had done things and coming up with a new way of doing it that uh, that works better. I mean, it's always about trying to find new ways of, of making stuff better. You know, it's, it's just constant struggle to do uh, better stuff and find different ways and, and stuff like that. And, uh, and for the most part, there's not been a lot of regrets. For the most part, I just, I just kind of look at what I've done and, uh, you know, you hope to do better the next day and you kind of just keep, Keep going and uh, keep progressing and, and stuff like that. You know, build off what you've done before and, and take it off in some new direction. There's always stuff to do. So um, I, I don't ever regret things for long because I can always find a, 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 something else to do, some other story to tell. And Seven Dragon is the, is a, a perfect example of the DIY success story. And you look at, you know, it's humble beginnings where, you know, you said before that it was a, a story that started out on just, you know, regular notebook paper. And 
it's one of those things that I really enjoy the advice that you give to young up and coming creators. Just do your comic. It doesn't matter the tools. You don't need this kind of board. You don't need this kind of thing. Just do the comic. Yeah. And and, and, and you see that all around too. Cause there, there are guys who make their own comics and they can't draw and they don't haven't really figured out a lot of the stuff. And they, and, but they've got Stickman comics where they've got uh, some rudimentary drawings or that they've got clip art that they've pulled from someplace or another and they're just putting their own words down on it to tell some kind of a story. There, there are no real rules in terms of how you do this stuff. You just need to do the stuff. And that's the, the biggest problem with with most of the wannabe creators is they never actually do the work. And, and, and really, it's, that's the important part of it, is you actually have to do the work. Yeah. And, you know, one of the biggest success stories in recent memory in comics, I don't know the uh, artist-author's name offhand, but the creator of the book, My Favorite Thing is Monsters, where you look at that, and the entire book is done on notebook paper, and it was the first comic ever done by this woman who's like in her fifties, and she's just like, "Eh, screw it, I'll do it." Yeah, that's awesome. And it's you know that element of no one's going to tell your story but you, so you should be the one that you know makes the effort to get it out there. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, you know, just get it done. There's there's no reason not to. Eric, I want to jump back to a couple of things you you pointed on and reminded me of, and one of was growing up with the comics and the characters. And I guess just as a reader myself, child of the 70s also, and, and really collecting heavy in the 80s, first I remember that was Spider-Man graduating, Peter Parker graduating high school and moving on to ESU. So I was like, oh, that was a a, a landmark or whatever in his, yeah, yeah, in his yeah. life. Well, initially the Marvel characters were set in real time. The first... Um the years that Stan and Jack and Steve were working at uh, Marvel, you had things like characters graduating from high school. You had, um, you know, Reed and Sue weren't married when the series began, and then they got married, and then Sue got pregnant, and then they had a kid over the course of that, what was it, seven, eight-year run on the book, you know, from... And and you can look at that and go, oh wow, look at that! They're 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 progressing. This is so different from the, all the other comics that were being published at the time. Characters were actually going someplace, and as and at a certain point, they kind of realized, oh crap, we're successful, and our characters gonna are gonna age out of their roles if we let this continue, and so they kind of slammed the brakes on it, and then at that point, Peter Parker stayed in college for years, years, yeah, yeah, exactly. decades. Yeah. So. Well, the other corollary maybe that runs maybe parallel to that is the fact that somebody who's growing up, so to speak, with the comics is happy that they can go through however many of their own real-time years and still have these characters with them, like they didn't fade away, the book didn't get canceled, and maybe the person phases out into a different aspect of their own lives, but they're happy or content to have this character that they grew up with 
or kept coming up with so many years. That's another possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I yeah. think there is value to that. If there's, if there's value in knowing, hey, my I read Spider-Man and my kid can read Spider-Man and, yep. and his kids can read Spider-Man and they're all getting to read the same Spider-Man. They're all getting to read that same character. They're not uh, killing characters off and... and changing things up so much that it becomes unrecognizable to the next generation. Everybody gets to have, you know, Shaggy and Scooby or whatever. <laughs> and so there, there is definitely something valuable there. Um, at the same time, I think readers who do hang in there for a long, long time do get to a point where they're like, Oh, really? The Scorpion's going after J. Jonah Jameson again? <laughs> you know, how many times do we have to read that same story? I, w- I wish that these characters would progress there, you know? And at, at a certain point, it's, it seemed like, well, Peter Parker's married to Mary Jane. This, we're going somewhere with this. And then, it, and then they really had no place to go. Because if they went anywhere, then they're going to have to uh, address those problems and then address the problems that come after that. And they don't, they don't really want to do that. And they don't have somebody there who's going to create their next iconic character. So they can't really afford to just be killing characters off willy-nilly or changing things up so much that they're unrecognizable. Eddie? Another thing, too, when you first talked about I have the power, the power is mine, I was looking through all the things you've done, and I'm like, oh, Cosmic Spider-Man. There we go. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Another change in, you know, in, in the timeline there of that. But what it made me think of, too, was seeing all these different characters that you've done and worked on and so on. Are there any, I don't know if you can narrow it down to one character that uh, you didn't expect to be as popular, successful, whatever the word is, or maybe one that you thought, oh, this is really going to go somewhere, and it didn't go as far as you would hoped it would go or be. Yeah, I mean, there's 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 always that where, um, like, I co-created a character called uh, Cardiac while I was on Amazing Spider-Man, mm-hmm. and I thought, well, this is a cool visual. This guy could be used a lot. He's he's just, and then it just it didn't happen that much with him. He, he appeared a couple times after that, but it wasn't like he, he became bigger than, than, you know, and it's like, boy, I wish I'd held on to that guy because I would have used him a lot more than they did. I think I remember him from an uh, early 90s annual or something like that. I yeah, like Cardiac. Yeah. A few of those characters are, are used a little bit here and there. There's some another group of characters called the Femme Fatales who showed up in Spider-Man that I thought had some potential. And then it just, you know, it, it takes other people to uh, pick up that baton and run with it. And if they don't, then it, then that, that just never happens. It's, it's kind of the end of that. Um, and that's the kind of the down that the downside of working with uh, successive groups of creators is that everybody comes onto that with their own list of things that, that they like and they want to do and and the 
the characters that they grew up with and stuff like that. And they're they're not necessarily all on the same page as as what you would like as a reader or what you would like as a um, previous creator, you know, Mm -hmm. as as frustrating as it can be to uh, create something and then have somebody use your character and abuse your characters. It's just as frustrating to have those characters just go completely uh, neglected in a way, you know? You sit there and go, oh, man, if I were, if I were there, I'd be using whatever, Lagoon Boy all over the place. But, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you, you never know. You, once you're... Once you sign on, on the dotted line, that you don't own that stuff anymore. So that's now, Savage Dragon. Now, Savage Dragon is not one of the only green characters that you know you're associated with. You're also heavily associated with a run on the Hulk back in, I believe, the uh, late '90s. And one of my things is, I loved it, but I would have loved to have seen you draw the character as well. You know, uh, I just I didn't do much Hulk. I did the I did the defenders. I drew an issue uh, after Todd's run, but I never really. That was one of those books that I wanted to do, that I didn't really get to sink my teeth into to any great extent. Well, the other green characters I'm seeing you got involved with, I think, for about three years with the Teenage Ninja, Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yeah, that's. That is true. That one came about in a kind of a weird way. Um, but it, it, it kind of came about to a friend from when I was doing fanzines way, way back um, named Michael Dooney. And Michael Dooney had uh, created his own character called Gizmo. And we had sort of corresponded for years and was one of those things of hey, one of these days we should do something together. Um, in fact, er, real early on, he had contacted Eastman and Laird when when uh, those guys had just published Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and said, hey, how about a I Would you guys be interested in trading my fanzine for yours? And they said, sure. In fact, we both like one. And they sent him two copies of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles number one. And uh, he was like, well, what am I going to do with two of these? So he sent one of them to me. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, well, I thought that ended up being an, an R.A. comic. And uh, <laughs> a years later, Michael was working at Mirage. Uh, and so I, it was it had become a time where um, he could actually do something with the Turtles. And we set up to do a crossover. We did two different crossovers from Savage Dragon number two into a special that came out through Mirage, and then they did a second special a couple years later, and uh, it continued into Savage Dragon number 22. And uh, so that became this connection between me and between Michael and between uh, Eastman and Lair, and I guess they liked uh, those two crossovers and liked what I had uh, done with them. And so when it came time for Mirage to um, stop publishing and they were looking for somebody else to take over the book, they contacted me and said, well, we've had a lot of different 
people interested, but we'd really like you to do it. And so that's kind of how that came about. And and I just put together a, a good creative team on that book, and away they went. Yeah. So. Can you uh, can you touch again? I'm looking through the uh, all the titles and stuff. Touch on. I just recently got a, a copy of this run of the Fantastic Four, the world's greatest comics magazine, which they've used oh, like so long on the covers of their books and stuff. And I guess it just was a matter of time before that full title came out. But again, 12 issues, I'm assuming self-contained story. And maybe uh, the question is, what's it about or what's making it different than any other story that they've had? Well, kind of the idea with that is uh, that Stan and Jack did this nice long run on the Fantastic Four. But when they uh, when that team broke up and Jack went his separate ways, they didn't really uh, end on a big story. And I sort of the idea was, what if Stan and Jack knew the end was coming and wanted to go out with a bang? What would what would be a big story that would uh, really make make that uh, yeah, you know, you get the idea. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, we tried to get a group of people who would all kind of emulate uh, Stan and Jack, and just tell a big story. In this case, it was uh, Doctor Doom getting the power of Galactus, and it involved really the entire Marvel universe as it existed at that point, and a cast of thousands. And then we. Uh, got a whole bunch of different creators to come in and, and pretend to be Stan Lee and pretend to be Jack Kirby. And you guys got and, Stan to write the book as well, so Stan got to pretend to be Stan for a little bit too. Yeah, yeah, Stan, <laughs> Stan scripted the last issue. And we had hoped to uh, have um, Jack involved in a, in a strange way. Now, he had, he had passed away by that point, but there were several different pages of uh, that were unpublished, and so we were we were trying to work in a lot of those early on. But the uh, his the, the uh, Kirby estate was not very cooperative at that point, <laughs> so we weren't able to fun. do that. But we we had, we had hoped to be able to use like the unpublished cover issue 63 and and various other drawings that were done as as perhaps the one-off and it's right. kind of funny too because you know jack is kind of like the tupac of comic books in that there there is a quite a bit of unreleased stuff that is you know never seen the light of day and every few years something new will come out that you know people may not have known about that was you know sitting there and it's yeah. kind of cool to see that it is. Well, I think you would probably find if you went through most comic book artists' drawers that there's tons of stuff that just never sees the light of day. Um, and it's just kind of the nature of the beast where you get interested in something and think you're going to go someplace with it, and then you don't. Um, I know a lot of artists keep sketchbooks that are full of characters and ideas that aren't ever used or don't ever go anywhere. Um, and there's, there can be just 
tons and tons of uh, things that you just aren't even aren't even aware that they existed. And you know, one of the things that you know, you guys at Image got to talk to uh, Kirby a little bit more over the years. Did he like towards the end start to realize that? Yeah, he was a like he was very important in comics because it feels like when you hear things about him, he you know downplayed himself like, oh, I'm not that great. But like, was he ever towards the end like, okay, I'm kind of good, <laughs> you know, like something like that even. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not. I didn't talk to Jack enough to really get a great sense of of him or his work or. Um, his approach to doing stuff, you know, it kind of was, you know, you say hi when you see him, um, but I was always a little, I guess it, it starstruck would be, put it, put it mildly, when it came to him. Um, so I don't have any really great uh, Jack Kirby stories. I do know that, that uh, Rob Weisfeld was, was pouring through the drawers at his place uh, early on and did find some unpublished stuff. Uh, and he ended up, we ended up publishing that. We re- recruited a bunch of the image guys to ink pages of this thing, and, and uh, it's called Phantom Force. And we just all jammed on. Uh, Jack stuff and and put that out and that was really a fun job to be involved with and and uh, because Image Comics was huge at that point those books sold really really well and uh, the Kirby's got the biggest check of their lives from that book and there's a lot of stuff by, you know, Kirby that hasn't seen the light of day since the original publications. And, like, for example, Captain Victory is, like, mm-hmm. never seen, like, a re-release. Are there any titles out there with Kirby that you would love to see have have see the light of day again? Oh, sure. I mean, all that stuff. Uh, there's a bunch of his, his romance comics that haven't been reprinted. I'd love to see all that. Um... But, I mean, a lot of different publishers are going after different stuff from a lot of different directions. So quite a bit of stuff actually is in print, which has been pretty great. You have, do, you think uh, we'll ever, do you think we'll ever see a day when 2001 A Space Odyssey will come back to uh, print? I would, I would love to. I don't know what the rights issues of that stuff is going to be. Because that's kind of a kind of an interesting little thing. But yeah, Especially that, I'd like to see, um, he did an adaptation of the, the Black Hole as a Sunday newspaper strip. That's never been collected. That was him? He, yeah, he did it. He did it the Black Hole, of all things. Hmm. Um, I never knew yeah. that. Yeah, there was a, it was a weird time that, that I guess Disney just had uh, this Sunday strip, and they would just, whenever there would be a new movie or a new something, they would they would just 
slot in stuff by whoever, and then and it was a syndicated thing. And you know, it's since long gone. But there's a lot of different artists who have worked in and have done comic strips that have never been collected or have been collected in, in some place where you're not really that aware of them. You know, so like Bill Kane and Mike Grell did Tarzan for a number of years, and it's like you don't see that stuff around. Huh? When you mentioned the uh, the black hole, though, it's kind of funny because a few years ago at D23, Disney ended up bestowing Jack and Stan the Disney Legends Awards. And, mm -hmm. you know, some fans were complaining that, you know, they used the terminology, Jack Kirby, Disney Legend. Well, technically, they're right because he did do that adaptation of Black Hole. Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. And I think really any time you honor any of these, old creators it's, it's, it's yeah of course they should be you know what, what are you saying that that jack kirby is getting too much credit i don't think that's ever been the case no i know uh i did a panel with uh last year with don mcgregor and over the past few years there is this viral meme and I, I imagine you've seen it as well where they talk about the uh black panther run by don where he fights the kkk or the clan, quote unquote, and the meme going around credited to Jack Kirby, and it's kind of funny, you know, all these years, Jack Kirby never got the credit for this, never got the credit for that, and now for no reason, I will credit Jack for that when he had nothing to do with that. Yeah, well, I don't know what the point of that story was. <laughs> we get one of those usually every episode, uh, Eric. So don't worry about it. <laughs> well, that's in inevitable that that goes on. I mean, Stan got credit for co-creating Captain America and the Captain America, the end one shot that just came out. And it's like, you know, mis mistakes are made all the time where things are attributed to people who didn't have anything to do with it. And it's just invariably what goes on. Because, you know, we're all part of the world, and, and you can't keep track of everything. It's just, it's just difficult to, to do that. And, of course, you know, everyone with, with Kirby is going to go on with their favorite. But what is your favorite Kirby deep cut that, you know, doesn't get as much praise compared to, you know, his work at Marvel or DC? Uh... I, I, I mean, I, I think the, the, the best stuff he did was at Marvel and DC. I mean, other than, the, like like I said, the uh, some of the romance stuff that I haven't seen all of, because that stuff was, at least early on, that stuff was pretty wild um, and very different from what you think of in terms of romance comics. They were really just slice of life, stories much kind of in, in line with what uh, Marvel did early on with uh, with the Fantastic Four and, and Thor. And you go, oh, this is just the, the human interest parts of those stories. So, well, you bringing um, that up, though, about uh, Kirby and romance, Eric, is something I really hadn't thought of to begin with. And there was that period of time, yes, where that was what was being churned out and so on. But when you say wild, I mean, you said slice of life. Did it 
did the did the romance comics come through as being, hey, yes, this could be a real life story. It, it could apply to what the reader yeah, is. Yeah, or, yeah, that. But it, but you, when you think about romance comics, you kind of think of characters walking along the beach or staring into each other's eyes, or going out to dinner, and he would do stories about a boxer, and so you'd see actual, you know, fisticuffs of a boxer in the ring, and and. You know, or I I dated a, a a mobster and stuff like that, and you'd get like some of that slice of life mobster mall type stuff, and it, and it's like, oh wow, this is not what I expect from a romance comic yeah. necessarily. Dating a mobster, it's you know the sort of thing where you go, oh, I could see being a guy and reading this and feeling like. Oh, this is this is an appropriate thing for me to be reading. See, I was otherwise I was thinking explicit, and it's like, wait a minute, we got to have a Comics Code Authority label on this or something. I don't know. Yeah. Well, dating a monster has been a part of my slice of life in the past, so <laughs> here we are. <laughs> and it's kind of cool to see, though, that there are so many people out there that would love to see. You know, obviously we can't have more, but. Were there any maybe dream collaborations you would have loved to have seen with Kirby? Like myself, oh, yeah. I, I would have loved to have seen a uh, Harvey P. Card, Jack Kirby book. That would have been amazing. Just something. <laughs> um, you know, I, mostly I, I have to wonder when he was sent over to, uh, when he went over to D.C., you know, what would have happened if, instead of Jimmy Olsen, it had been Wonder Woman, or what would have happened if instead of Jimmy Olsen, it would have been The Flash or any of the other characters, how would he have, have what would he have added to those books? How would he have expanded the rogues galleries of, of those titles? You know, what would Jack's Batman in the 70s have been? You know, those and are the kinds of questions that I'm interested in in terms of him working with other writers i don't know that he is the 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 best as as a collaborator necessarily i i just like seeing him do stuff on his own and running off because he's such a great idea guy that to have him be hampered by uh some other writer who's not necessarily going to be feeding into his uh, strong visual sense the way that he does on his own. He's just constantly coming up with crazy stuff. And, you know, when he came back to Marvel in, like, the uh, mid to late 70s, you know, post uh, Fourth World, it's kind of crazy to see there are characters like he did cover work for. Like, there are issues of, uh, I think, the Marvel feature with Moon Knight, where... He drew Moon Knight. He drew so-and-so briefly. He did, you know, of course, just cover work. But yeah, yeah, the yeah. one that, you know, that always drives me nuts that he never did was Star Wars. Because imagine him drawing those glee plops. Yeah, well, uh, or, you know, people keep on, did he ever draw Wolverine? Because, you know, Wolverine, you know, Jack was back there at a time when the new X-Men was starting up and getting going. But they didn't have Jack do any covers for uh, the X Men, and it's like, oh man, it would have been interesting to see Jack's take on those characters. Eddie, with respect to 
doing a script or doing the artwork, and I assume there there could be equal level of difficulty if you're just getting dropped into, like, for example, 10 issues of Doom Patrol, uh, 12 issues of Aquaman, and another 16 of Wolverine to, you know, continue or perpetuate a storyline or the visuals. One versus the other, I guess, the same amount of a challenge? Uh, it's, it's always different because there's this different characters involved and there's different editors and, and creative teams involved. So there's, there's, there's always some kind of challenge where you're coming in there. Uh, it usually involves doing a lot of reading and a lot of research so you're not, you're, you're not uh, stirring things up or contradicting or doing something similar to what's been done already. Um, and most of those books, I kind of approach it as, uh, what would Jack do, you know? And, yeah. and uh, mostly instead of continuing with whatever had been going on, my inclination is always to uh, freshen the pot and create new villains and create new supporting characters and add to those books so that the successive creators have more to play with. And so those characters themselves uh, have an expanded rogues gallery, you know? I, I think there, there's this tendency to just stick with the characters that have been created. And, and a lot of those books could use some freshening up, and it would be, it would be great to have somebody come on, say, Spider-Man or, or Iron Man or any of those books and just go, I'm going to do a, a couple years on this thing and I'm not going to reuse any of the villains that you guys have come up with. It's going to be entirely new characters. And then, you know, the, the people following them have suddenly got this expanded rogues gallery of, wow, now there's, there's these 15 new characters that weren't here before. Yeah, so I was going to say what I did or wanted to do um, when I would go in and take on these these various books is okay. Well, what can we what can we add? What what hasn't been done? And, and you know what I was going to say in regards to these characters of you know creating new ones and new villains and whatnot. I was going to say at first, do you think maybe it could have to factor in with the movies and everything in regards to you know oh we don't want to do this we want to do this. But the only time that was really an issue was in regards to the uh, X-Men, where there was a, I've heard there was a mandate ordered where you can't create new characters because Fox will technically own them. And now, uh, due to the whole merger, that's out the door. Hmm. But who knows? I mean, it is an interesting thing because, you know, there are characters like they do need freshening up in terms of stories to tell with villains. Yeah. 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 I mean, there's there's always fun to be had with any of these characters. There's there's just there's so much that can be done. And one of the things in recent memory is now the Fantastic Four are back into the fold, and with everything, you know, everyone's speculating what could this mean for the future of Marvel, and not just you know the movies, but of course the main comics in general, and. You're a big Fantastic Four fan with, you know, your experience with the characters. Why do you feel, the, do you feel the Fantastic Four 
are one of the most important parts of the Marvel mythos? Well, sure. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I, I, and I love those characters. There's a lot, yeah. like, they have been so underutilized over the past few years, and it's a shame because, you know, when you go through those runs, the Stan and Jack runs, the John Byrne runs, the Walt Simonson runs, everyone's, you know, they have something in there that makes them into such great characters. And I, I don't get when I hear, you know, people go on saying, oh, the Fantastic Four suck. Have you, have you read them? <laughs> if your only experience is the movies, yeah, of course. But yeah, yeah, I mean, in, in each book is, is really just as good as its creators. And, and any title, um, for the most part, has had fallow periods where you can look at it and just go, oh my God, this was, this was not good. You know? And so it's like, you know, at one point you might have said, yeah, Daredevil sucks because, you know, I don't like these creators who are working on it. For a long time, Iron Man sucked because, you know, the, the creators on that weren't any good. I think every book has, has had its period where you can look at it and go, boy, this is no good. And and it's like, well, is, is that the fault of, of the creator, the characters, or is that a fault of the creators who are working on it currently, you know, or at that point? So, I, I, mean, I, the... I, I think for people who make the argument that there's that there are no bad characters and that it's only bad creators, but I think there are bad characters, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I wouldn't include the Fantastic Four. Yeah, I think those guys are awesome. I just think it's silly that, you know, a fan will go on saying, oh, they're terrible if their only experience is, you know, through one medium. It's Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, that's why, like, you know, when we did Fantastic February last year, I fell in love with the FF more so than I ever did before. And they were a daunting group of characters for me when I tried getting in, you know, when I got reintroduced back into comics uh, nine years ago now. And when eventually I was like, no, I'm going to do it. I'm going to try and read these. It was then in the X-Men. And now as a result, as I've said in the past, on my hoodie, I have an Xavier School for Gifted Youngsters patch, and I'm planning on making a pair of uh, custom Chuck Taylors with the uh, Fantastic Four logo on the side. So here we are. (laughs) But, you know, these characters are just, there's something about them. And that's just, like, for the most part, comic characters in general, there's just something about these characters that stand the test of time. And that's especially, pre- you know, very true about Savage Dragon. Savage Dragon, you know, could have just been a 90s comic and that was that. But it has such a lasting staying power that makes it such a great character and such a fun character to read. And just the whole overall story with his cast of characters as it evolves over the years. And I guess mm-hmm. the point I'm getting at is, have you ever been in a submarine? No. The <laughs> point I'm getting at although I would like you to answer that later. But <laughs> what I'm getting at is what do you feel is the lasting staying power of Savage Dragon? Um, I, I think a big part of its appeal is that it is constantly changing. And that, the, that for, for people who don't like that so many characters are, are basically set in amber... That you've got this one book where there's 
there's movement, there's detectable movement all, all the time. And, you know, here is a book which can and does grow up with you. And I, and I think that's, that's appealing. And, and, and in terms of uh, his character creation, you, you've got an awful lot of books, like, like I was saying, that, that just sort of are, are playing with the toys that are in the toy box, where the, this book has got this constant, uh, constant flow of new characters that are being introduced all the time. And that that can be an exciting thing too, where you're, you're just sitting there going, "Oh, I get, I get introduced to all these new characters." And and even if you, the book is intimidating, you might go, "Oh, 28 years worth of stuff." But you can you still can be in on the ground level of any number of characters from one issue to the next because characters are constantly being introduced. So you can be like, yeah, I started reading when this villain was introduced, and and I've been following it ever since. Or I've been reading since uh, Malcolm got married, or I've been reading it since you know what, whatever. And and it's and it's kind of cool. And I I think of of I think of it like like meeting people. You know, the, the, nobody ever says to themselves. Geez, I don't want to meet a new person because they've got all this backstory and it's going to be confusing and I'll never be able to catch up on their entire lives. Nobody would think such a thing because it's ridiculous. But you you still have that with comics for some reason where you go, oh man, Iron Man's so far along, I couldn't possibly catch up. But if you just read an issue of Iron Man, you get a pretty decent idea of, of where the characters are and how they relate to one another and w- what its status quo is and, and what direction the characters are going in. And same thing with with any of the other books and, and with Savage Dragon. And even though there's been a huge number of changes within the book over the course of uh, 28 years, you can still read the new issue and get uh, not caught up, but uh, but involved, you know, where you can just get suddenly go, oh, okay, I know what's going on now, and I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna stick with it from here, you know, and and I've had readers who who've started at, at any number of places over the years where they'll be like, yeah, my first issue was issue 63 or my first issue was issue 200. Um, and that happens all the time. I've got a lot of people who are just are new converts. They never read the book before and, and now they, they want to try it out. They'd heard about it for years and like, okay, I'm doing it, man. <laughs> All right. And it's, it's funny, too, though, because, you know, myself, I'm going through a Savage Dragon reread, and I decided to go all in on this by including, you know, all the tie-in series, all the miniseries that were going on. You know, I'm reading Freak Force, I'm reading the Dark miniseries. Deadly Duo, by the way, 
I don't like during my initial read through. I don't remember if anything happened to them. Please don't spoil for me. But <laughs> I love Deadly Duo, and you know I'm discovering all these characters, and there's just something about the flow of it. And I was listening to an interview, or not an interview, but when cartoonist Kayfabe did a reread of the original three issue miniseries, and they talk about how fast it flows and how it's very much like a manga where you just keep going, keep going, and you're done with it fast, but you absorb all the information and you just want to keep going, keep going. It's like bingeable television. And <laughs> it's so great in that sense because, like I said for myself, you know, I said to you off mic, there's that element of I have so much I can read and I can't wait to experience the next thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although, like I said, and, catching up is the worst because then I have to wait. <laughs> and, and also with, with this is uh, I, can, I can do anything. And that's such a, uh, such a freeing thing from, uh, from all the other books where I can literally do anything I want to on the next page. It doesn't matter. I'm not tied in. I'm not tied down or anything. I can have somebody come bursting through the wall. I can have there be spaceships overhead. I can flash to any character anywhere on the on the earth. And, you know, characters that I'm suddenly I'm tired of, I can just be like done with them and never see them again for years and then it's it's so different from anything else and and you know one of the the things i constantly hear from people is is just oh it's such such a surprise to be reading the book but i'll turn the page i never know what's going to happen next and that's often the case with me as the guy creating it is that i'm just flying by the seat of my pants and that makes it entertaining as a creator, and it makes it super entertaining as a reader, because you really don't know where anything is going. And, and that's one of the, the pitfalls of a lot of comics, is you can kind of see the plot as, as they unfold. And you're just like, I know where they're going with this. This has got a definite direction. Whereas when you don't have that and characters really can be all over the map, um, they can be exciting comics. It'd be a really a fun time. I think Eric, that and, pretty much answered what I was thinking of as my last question was that we're hitting Savage Dragon 250 now. How much more, I'm assuming you've got more material in your head than, than is actually fleshed out on paper or computer. Um, how far out are you with that? Do you think? Um, you mean how far ahead am I planning? Or? Right, like uh, I've got material now for the next two, three, five issues, but in my head I've got so much more, or whatever. Um, generally speaking, I've got um, I've got like decades worth of directions where I want to go this place with this character and this character place with that one. So there ends up being sort of the the big picture character goal type things where here I've got a place where I want to go with Maxine or with Malcolm or with any of uh, 
the kids that are in the book. But I don't necessarily know what goes on on page four. You know? Because it's, it's, it's much more big picture than it is small picture. And I don't really plot it out super tight in terms of where it's going to be in an issue from now or 10 issues from now or three issues from now. But I do have just sort of these bigger overarching directional things of, well, this is this character's goal and he's, he wants to get from point A to point B. So those are my, my real sort of long-term things as I'm thinking long-term. But in terms of short-term, it can really be all over the place. Uh, so now, and that's kind of what I'm thinking with stuff is, is have it be, have it be character driven, not, uh, not plot driven. So if the, one of the characters suddenly takes a wild turn, some long-term plans can be tossed out the window just impulsively because I, I felt like drawing a drawing of some character exploding. <laughs> yeah. So now, Eric, before we wrap this one up, I want to ask you, in regards to your career, one of the people that you got to work with was the legendary Herb Trimpey, and this year marks the five-year passing of Herb. What was it like working alongside him on you know, various Savage Dragon-related projects, especially? Um, I was a huge fan. I always wanted to uh, meet heard and uh, it turns out that we both went to a convention in um, Seattle and we got seated next to each other and I just got you know was there for for two days just picking his brain and and talking to him about all the old comic book stuff and we kind of you know kind of became pals at that point and Corresponded somewhat over the uh, computer, sent each other uh, uh, emails back and forth, and then I had one. The first comic I ever read as a kid, I ever bought on my own, was issue 156 of uh, uh, The Incredible Hulk. When I came up to issue 156 of Savage Dragon, I wanted to have Herb Trimpey do a a basically a reimagine the Hulk 156 cover as a Savage Dragon 156 cover. So that was the first time we kind of worked together as I did a rough layout of how I, how I wanted those figures to now be Savage Dragon figures. And I just did some basic underdrawing so that uh, Dragon Silhouette would, would stay essentially his silhouette. And then when it came around to uh, uh, Dragon 200, I proposed doing two different stories, one which I would pencil and he would ink, and then one that uh, he would pencil and I would ink. And that just came along beautifully. But he'd also written and drawn a story for the next issue project that we had done. 
and that was a, a nice little short one-off uh, character uh, called the Spitfires. And that was just, you know, we I sent him uh, stories of, of those characters, and with the next issue project, you just take, basically you're draw, writing and drawing the next issue of, of those characters. And he did a, it was a wonderful little war story that he had come up with on his own. Um, and that was just, you know, when I saw that there was this war story in one of these old comics, it was like, well, Herb Trimpey's got to be the guy to pick up this ball and run with it. <laughs> so it was just, he is just a, a, a real delight and, and one of those situations where you kind of hope that guys that you're fans of um, are good people. And, uh, and in some cases, you kind of are intimidated to meet people because you don't want to have your illusions shattered. Mm-hmm. But he was, he was just a delight. And he was a delightful guy to, to work with. And uh, a really good, just all-around human being. So, and it's, you know, he's one of those that his work has, he hasn't gotten, like, the level of, you know, such praise as a lot of the other creators, but he's so damn good, especially that Hulk run. Oh, his Hulk run was amazing. It was amazing. He was the glue who held that book together. Yeah. And it would, it would, uh, it went from one writer to another. Every writer seemed like they would do a, a year-long run on the book. And he just worked from, you know, it's like Stan did one, one year, and then it went to Roy, and then it went to Archie Goodwin, and then it, you know, it just kept going from one guy to another. And they, he did some great work on that book and really kept it together. Absolutely. Yeah, I was I was pretty broken up when he left the book. <laughs> I was like, oh my god, this was that that was like the first run that I that I really put together and had all together. So it's sad to see it come to an end. Uh, all right, Eric. Before we go, thank you once again for doing the program. Sure. Do appreciate it. Congratulations on all that success. And I'm going to put you on maybe on the spot, and I don't usually ask this of any person we've talked to before, but if there's somebody who really didn't know much about or just barely heard the name Savage Dragon, if you were to throw together in you know, a minute or less of some phrases or whatever to pitch and to sell Savage Dragon, how would you say if you want action, if you want... Innuendo, well, whatever you know. I, I kind of, I kind of thought of Savage Dragon as sort of the bridge between Marvel Comics and Vertigo Comics when I started. But it was sort of superhero comics for grown-ups. But it really has a lot of that kind of bombastic uh, Marvel Comics stuff that I read as a kid, where there was a lot of big action and big characters. But more than anything, it's just the idea of of playing this out in real time, you know, of, of having characters that that are, are, are born and we we can see their whole lives unfold as it goes along. And it's just been, I mean, for me, it's it's, it's the most rewarding experience I've had doing comics ever, which 
I, I guess, expected. All right, Eric, um, before we go, how can people get a hold of you on social media? Uh, I'm, I'm on, there's SavageDragon.com is, is my website. I'm on, uh, I'm on Facebook and, and Twitter and, and all the rest. Just look for my, my own mug. For The Marvelous, I'm Peter Melnick. And this is Eric Larson doing whatever the hell I do. And I'm Eddie Wilson, <laughs> Excelsior. <laughs> Welcome back to another installment of Obsessed with Marvel. Eric Larson sticking around to talk to us some more and put his wits uh, alongside ours. Thanks, Eric. All, All right. right. Here's the question. It's 1,150. That is not the answer. Which member of the Hellfire Club's inner circle is not a mutant? The choices are Emma Frost, Harry Leland, Sebastian Shaw, or Donald Pierce. I can read it again. Which member of the Hellfire Club's inner circle is not a mutant? Emma Frost? I'm, I'm just going to go with a shot in the dark and say Donald Pierce. Okay. Again, it's yeah, Emma same. Frost, Harry Leland, Sebastian Shaw, and Donald Pierce. I wasn't sure who Harry Leland was, but so I was kind of leaning that way. But if two out of three are guessing Donald Pierce, what am I going to do? Follow? <laughs> Let me think about this. Oh, it's my book. I'm going B, Harry Leland. No, it's yeah. not B. The answer is Donald Pierce. <laughs> Bad mark in my book. Oh, what do I know? Being a bullheaded uh, Leo that I am, I suppose. I don't know. He's a cyborg, dude, as I recall. Donald like, Pierce is a cyborg? He's got like a cybernetic arm or something like that. Oh, okay. So not a robot. Robot. Okay. You have a metal arm. That's so cool. All right, Parker. <laughs> Different metal arm. Okay. 1,485. Armbar. Which statement is true about the Red Hulk? He is... Which, which statement is true? He is Bruce Banner. He... Excuse, sorry. As he gets angrier, he becomes even stronger. As he gets angrier, he emits more intense heat. He lacks human intelligence. I don't like this question. I don't <laughs> it's like not- this question either. <laughs> Which statement is true about the Red Hulk? So all the other ones have got to be false, I suppose. So he uh, is he is Bruce Banner. Or not. Is fa- he lacks human intelligence? False. Okay. As he gets angrier, he becomes even stronger. And as he gets angrier, he emits more intense heat. I think the answer is B, becomes even yeah. stronger. Maybe it, it, That's pretty typical Hulk stuff. So Yeah. That's one of his catchphrases. Not, I, the, be- not would, the best I of what he does. Yeah. But, all right, so maybe B is right this time. Let's try that. No, it's not. <laughs> it says, as he gets angrier, he emits more intense heat. Yeah, oh, whatever. I think, yeah. I don't know. I didn't know that that was the case, but that's just a reflection well, of how much I have to catch up on. Yeah. All right, let's let's <laughs> let's, let's complete the I trifecta the of pain. sucks so much. <laughs> like a vacuum. Okay. 2,400, we're almost at the end here, and 70. How do you measure? Measure a year. Oh, wait, that's okay. a completely different number. Here we go. Who was Timely Comics' original Black Widow? Was it an agent of Satan, a former Nazi agent, a Russian spy, uh, sorry, a, a Russian spy battling Nazis, or a woman detective avenging her dead husband? Timely Comics' wow. original Black Widow. 
I'll read it again. Uh, probably the last one. The woman detective avenging her dead husband. Okay, or again, Russian spy battling Nazis, former Nazi agent or agent of Satan. I, kind I of, like the way Eric thinks. I do too, so let's just go for D. Oh no, it's not. <laughs> it's an agent of Satan. Agent I don't Satan. like the way. Wow. This is a nothing round. I'll tell you what, no affection on you, Eric, really. <laughs> um, you know what? We got to have one, right? Let, let's just try one more. And that uh, either way. I got the first one, right? All the, yeah, uh, that's true. I just had to happen to be <laughs> bullheaded here and just pick that one. Yeah, that's true. All right, 1778. What a great year that was. Uh, who was Dr. Strange's love interest in the stories by Roger Stern and Marshall Rogers? Dr. Strange's love interest. Madeline St. Germain. Sarah Wolf, Morgana Blessing, or Victoria Bentley? I'm going to go with Mor- the Blessing. Morgana Blessing. Dr. Strange Love. Uh, we'll just go there because I have absolutely no clue. Let's let go letter C. Thank goodness it is correct. Doesn't Marshall Rogers sound <laughs> like a cowboy? Yeah, maybe. Fast food place, too. I stopped oh, that. Oh, Eddie. Uh, thank you again. <laughs> <laughs>